BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hmm? Ah! Hmm. Hey everybody, I'm Rima. And I'm Paige. And I'm Jason. And I'm Jade. (laughs) (laughs) And this is Strange Indeed, a podcast dedicated to the movie The Innocence, the 1961 Jack Clayton film adapted from the Henry James novel The Turning of the Screw. The Turn of the Screw. Turn of the Screw. That's my typo. This is what happens when you're when you're multitasking and putting the <laughs> agenda together. Uh, I know. Well, I, I always want I mix those up too. And when I say that, because I get like taming of the shrew and turn of the shrew, like <laughs> they cross wires in my head. So I get it. I do the same. Probably thing. where it came from. Yes. <laughs> it's also. I think I've said that recently too. So yeah. <laughs> and I have a bad habit of multitasking, so that gets me too. But um, well, welcome to Strange Indeed, Jade. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So lovely to be here. Well, we're here because uh, you had this great idea to podcast on this movie because um, I I heard you went down a whole Flanniverse rabbit hole. I did. So you want to tell us a little bit about how we ended up here and what yeah. about your idea? Well, Jason suggested I should watch Midnight Mass. And so I, I actually started with that. And I, out of all of the Flanagan stuff that I've seen, that's definitely my favorite because I think it plays to all of his strengths. I think that his, who, you know, some people could say that Mike Flanagan could be a little long-winded with his like long speeches and everything. I just think it really worked in Midnight Mass. Mm -hmm. I could watch um, Hamish Linklater just act at me on i could just watch the man talk forever he's i just feel like midnight mass it was so um theatrical as well i'm an actor so i was really into it and i was here for those long speeches of just two people sitting in chairs he was not afraid to go there loved it um i i didn't so much latch on to um hill house and I watched Midnight Mass first, then Hill House, then Bly. And um, I really liked Bly. I actually, well, I liked it up until episode seven. The last three episodes irked me quite a bit. But yeah, okay. I, um, I because I, I liked it a lot more than Hill House, though, because the characters really 
grabbed me. I felt so deeply for all of them. And I think that the acting was far superior to that in Hill House. Nothing against those actors or anything. I just think the nature of it, the way it was told, the story kind of always felt a little disjointed. Everyone kind of felt like they were in their own movie. And just as a whole piece, it didn't it didn't sing, it didn't mesh together. But for some reason with Bly, I wanted to get in that world. I wanted to like be, I wanted to be with these people more. I liked the people. I think that might have been a problem too. Hill House had very few likable people people <laughs> even though right. i guess in Bly, in Bly, people do pretty terrible things too um i don't know for some reason just i was able to get into their interior spaces their mentality a lot more closely i felt so mm -hmm. close to them as characters you know mm -hmm. to me hill house felt more like mostly horror right with, with some other stuff and and Bly felt more like a people story or something you know yeah yeah and i people. think that that's what mike flanagan does so well is mm -hmm. is writing these people just the characters i'm not there for the jump scares which is why i really loved midnight mass um the the parts of midnight mass that i was just like eh, okay skip 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 get through this was when like the cgi monstery you know vampire figures <laughs> or whatever i i would love to see mike flanagan do something where he just dropped horror altogether and didn't and just fully embrace the psychological thriller aspect of it no you know jump scares no cgi just just i want to be like mike flanagan be confident just write people because i think that yeah. with bly it what it wanted to be was just this great drama and then it just had this lady in the lake crap just kind of shoved in there which felt like it was out of a completely different film i was actually shocked by how little the lady in the lake story and all the ghostiness it, it factored into the story almost not at all and and it's probably because um it was a complete invention on his part it was not in the innocence and it was not in the turn of the screw so yeah. i just don't think that it meshed as well as as maybe it could have or should have um for what it was but i still liked Bly. i liked it a whole lot i just i just did not like the ending <laughs> but we can get into that later totally get it well, that is awesome because um, it's it's quite a rabbit hole to go into. Um, in oh, yeah. Universe, so, so that's what led me to The Innocence. Awesome. Uh, watch, watching Bly. So that was the last thing I watched from Mike Flanagan. And then I was like, well, now, as I had read The Turn of the Screw and I remembered loving it years ago. Um, and I wanted to watch The Innocence because I think I had seen it years before, but I didn't remember. And I think it's just one of the OG best psychological thrillers ever made, maybe. As far as films go, you know. Awesome. Um, well, I hadn't seen it, so this was my first introduction to, to that movie. So I, I thought, well, that's a shock and a shame that it took me this long to watch it because <laughs> um, it was certainly interesting. Um, I thought it yeah, must have been here. interesting for you guys who delved so deeply into Bly to see this movie. Yeah, and see yeah. that because I was shocked. I know this is skipping ahead a little to see that. Oh, Mike Flanagan didn't just take stuff from The Turn of the Screw; he took stuff from this movie. Yeah, and put yeah. it in the Bly. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff. It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, Sorry, Pake. <laughs> no, no, I was gonna, no, I was gonna say the same thing. I, just, I didn't even really know about the innocence. Shame on me, right? Uh, but yeah, I just wasn't even really aware of it, which then as I'm watching it for this, I was like, oh, and it's even Criterion Collection. Of course, <laughs> I'm missing. But, uh, but yeah, uh, it was and we'll talk more about comparisons and stuff. But it was, you know, ex you know, specific reasons. But it was interesting watching this because I watched it 
through the lens of Bly Manor. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, oh, okay. And so then I was like, oh, I know where this story's going. And so then I get to point. So I was like, or not? <laughs> <laughs> like, it was, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that so that was interesting. Is very much watching it as oh, Bly Manor but you know an older version and see what's different and then realizing like oh mike flanagan did have a lot of uh royalties he took or you know at yeah, some point it's a bit of an homage in certain places mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think he was definitely paying some tribute to some of that um well i know we're gonna do things a little differently um this week i typically when we're doing our shows we do like a top three or top five um but with movies we do more of like a general discussion um, and do like a round table, which is I thought would with the four of us would be, you know, kind of interesting to kind of, you know, just talk about whatever you really want to talk about. There's really no rules, you know, if you have favorite scenes or if there's something that you appreciated as far as like the direction, the cinematography, the, um, the acting um, or anything about the film or anything that you didn't like. Um, it's, it's pretty much a free, free for all. So no rules. Um, so we're going to do things a little differently, but um, I will at least ask at least general thoughts before we go too, too deep into the discussion of the film. Um, Jade, I think clearly I understand that you liked it because um, um, we're here because of you and, and how much of you that you enjoyed it. But I'm mm. curious to hear um, from you, Paik and Jason, what you guys thought of the film in general. Did you like it? Um, I watched it twice. The first time, I thought it was pretty good. I liked it more the second time. I still didn't love it. I think it's a movie that I might like more as time goes on because I think it's really deep. Yeah. And uh, the more you pay attention, the more closely, the more you can get out of it. And I feel like it's kind of yeah. like a puzzle to solve, which I do like. And I think it's really artfully done. And I think probably if you watched it at the time, it's one of those groundbreaking movies that would have blown your mind a little bit. But now, not quite as much, although still, there's a lot to appreciate with the way things are framed and the focus and the light and all of that. Um, I was interested to see how Mike Flanagan borrowed from Blind Manor, although I saw Blind Manor a while back and I've since shoved my brain with a hundred other shows and kind of forgotten most of Blind Manor. It's crazy kind of how remember, much, how quickly stuff goes out of your head. It's I remember it's how it helped scary. me make me feel. Yeah, seriously. It really is. I mean, <laughs> I, that's why I need to podcast on something qu- pretty quickly after I've seen it and yeah. I can get it all out and then I forget. <laughs> but uh, then um, I also loved Martin Stevens playing this little kid, Miles. Oh my gosh. That part. And also um, Barbara Kerr, is that her name? Deborah, I think Deborah, her perform- Deborah Kerr. Sorry. Uh, she was great, but he was especially good. And that's the part that I was the most like transfixed by whenever he was on screen. Totally. I was just yeah. really digging it. Um, but anyway, as far as like the puzzle and what it all means and everything, I, I which I kind of did like digging into, I think I have a vague grasp on it, but I think it's also the kind of movie that's open to interpretation. So um, you could have a hundred different <laughs> interpretations of what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, Paik? Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it <laughs> again. It was weird kind of watching it through the lens of Bly Manor and then having to kind of deconstruct that afterwards and be like, no, this is also its own thing. I think, you know, and we'll talk about it, but you know, might as well specify. I think the biggest thing of course is watching it through the lens of Bly Manor, which spoilers for Bly Manor. If you haven't seen that and anybody's listening, because we're going <laughs> to compare and contrast. And you should have yeah. seen that um, after yeah. listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, was, what really threw me is the fact that the ambiguity of the movie is left where at the end of it, 
you don't know if Jessel and Quint were actually even involved or possessing these kids or doing anything. It leaves you to where, like, there's so many reasons that you can go, yeah, I, I, clearly, because of the way Miles is acting and the words he's using and his kind of kind of over-sexual flirtiness and stuff that's way too mature for a kid his age. And so there's all these things where you're like, yeah, no, clearly that's Peter Quint. But then also you, there's so many things that set you up to be like, oh, no, Miss Giddens just has, has lost it. She's mm-hmm. gone completely crazy and she's imagining everything. And she thinks she's being gaslit by a gaggle of ghosts, but you know, uh, <laughs> she, you know, so it's, yeah, I, I, I do like that ambiguity, although it, it hit me kind of strangely because I was expecting it to be one thing and then going, Oh no, which I never read turn of the screw. So I don't know how close, you know, that, that is to that, you know, source material is, I think I, from what I understand, I think turn of the screw is also really ambiguous in that ending yes. as well. But yeah, I didn't realize that at first. So I'm thinking, I, I know what's going on. I was like, oh yeah, you can clearly see these kids are possessed the whole movie. And then for that end to be like, but what if they weren't? Oh mm-hmm. God, what do I know? Who, who am I? What's this? <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, the film, but, it feels like the film doesn't push anything. It doesn't push any one way of thinking on you. The only thing that is pushed is the ambiguity itself. It's just like, yeah, you're right. not supposed to know. And I don't think the point is knowing. I think the point mm-hmm. is not to have an answer. Because I don't yeah. know what the answer is, and I I'm not really interested in knowing. I'm I'm more excited by the the uncovering of it all and the way that it always constantly turns on its head, and and you're never really sure who's innocent and who's not, and whose fault it is. You know, who's I think that that's the biggest difference between the innocence film and Bly is is that ambiguity, and I think it's uh. I, I got to say, I think it's an issue in a lot of Mike Flanagan It is his over explaining everything because it, it takes the mystery out for me. It takes the the suspense completely out of it for me. And that was what the ending of Bly lacked so much that I that I didn't that didn't connect with me, that didn't hit with me is is mm-hmm. there. It felt it felt uh, we can see everything, you know. I that's I think it got to episode seven or eight when Peter Quint is just like, okay, guys, these are all the rules. This is how it all works. This is exactly what. And it's just explaining, 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 explaining. And then I'm still confused, weirdly (laughs) enough. It's like throwing all this logic at me. But then the next in one minute and then the next minute, it's like, wait, wait, I thought we were doing logical here. This is this ain't logical. This makes what are we doing? I don't know. Uh, For all the explaining that Mike Flanagan does, I I, I wonder sometimes why I'm still left so confused. (laughs) (laughs) That's just me. Yeah. And I guess the the flip side, one of my biggest complaints, I guess, with this movie is that exposition can be important in some ways is, again, watching it through the lens of thinking, oh, they're clearly possessed. And then it adds, I guess, to the fact that maybe it, adds to the the train of thought that maybe Miss Giddens just really is losing it and it is all in her head is I think that her coming to these like understandings and be like it's Miss Jessel and, and Peter Quint and they're coming back and they've been grooming the children and they've possessed them and they're trying to get together and the only way they can be, be together is through the physical bodies and he's like where did you come up all with all that so fast and you're so sure like yeah so then I'm like well if that is exactly the case like how did she put those pieces together right? in like an afternoon uh, <laughs> right well yeah, I mean I read there's a few different possibilities uh and one of them is that she's possessed <laughs> you know another one is that mm-hmm. the kids are possessed um yeah but I know what I, the, the, I, there's a very specific version that I'm the most interested in. And I looked at the movie through that filter 
And I didn't mm-hmm. really look at it through any other filters, even though I know that other people do. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, well, let's get into it. Um, because I, <laughs> I, what'd you think? Yeah. What'd you think, Rima? Well, you know, I, I think I'm still trying to kind of settle on it because I, I just watched it, uh, last night, uh, to, to kind of be fresh on it. And I don't know if I've settled. I mean, I, I, I liked it. I definitely liked, um, the direction. I liked the filming choices. Like I oh yeah, love, you know, certain f- I don't know all the technical terms for it or anything, but you know, when they use certain um, things on the camera, um, like filters or whatever, you know, they make really interesting choices um, in this film. And I really appreciate that. Um, I liked some, there there was this one scene where she's picking uh, roses in the garden and, you know, she's outside and there's all the birds and just all the nature all around her. And it's, it's almost it's almost overly noisy. Like it's very obvious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, then when she kind of peeks into the roses and sees like some type of statue, it looks broken or something, and she she doesn't quite know what to make of it and kind of backs out. It's a out boy holding it's, feet. Like, yeah, it's kind of weird. Feet. Yeah, kind of <laughs> weird. A, it's a cupid holding cupid. hands. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was feet. It, well, it was <laughs> kind. It's kind of hard to hard to tell. Um. So she she looks kind of like. I don't know if she was disturbed or really what her thoughts were in that moment, but she kind of backs away. And then all of a sudden it's like super quiet. And I yeah. thought, oh, that's. We saw the beetle come out too. Yeah. Did that come? Yeah. 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 But then everything was like all the birds, you know, all everything that was happening around her, you know, as she was picking the flowers just went stone silent, which is just odd and always really kind of freaks me out. So I added a nice little, you know, element to it, and, you know, cause I wasn't really scared. Um, by this film which i don't know that i'm supposed to be but you know i'm always kind of looking for that uh you know a little bit of a scare Ooh, don't like that you know uncomfortable feeling but that made me uncomfortable so i really i really liked that nice yeah yeah i felt maybe it's just i'm conditioned because of hill house and Bly, (laughs) but but i feel like even with this one the way that like the angles were set where like the camera would just sit and focus on something for a while while your actors are in the foreground, but like things are clearer in the background. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I almost felt like you should be like watching behind them, just like expecting something to happen. Or I see was something and you don't. But like, but I almost feel like those camera shots were set up in that way. And you're like, I'm drawn to the background a little bit while watching. This. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, there were, I mean, there were statues appearing and disappearing. Yeah. 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 And that made me think of Flanagan Hill house yep. and Bly mm-hmm. Manor and make me think, even though Hill house came first, that, he was inspired by this movie to have things mm-hmm. in the background. Yep. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They played a lot with depth of field in the filming of this because it was filmed in CinemaScope, which was a very odd choice for something this, you know, a household drama. It, it was not the norm for this kind of a story to be told in such a wide, huge screen. And Jack Clayton was like really unhappy initially about having to film that way. And in order to get in order to get that clarity that you're talking about, Pake, the depth of field, how different mm-hmm. things um, in different uh, for different depths of the camera are all in focus. They had to just apply so much light that uh, the actors like hated working on set 
because the lights were so overpowering and like just burning, burning hot. <laughs> and you can imagine like back in the day too, the lights would have been less uh, efficient, I guess, than they are nowadays and Potter, probably way yeah. more, yeah, way more like, and I, I guess at one point there was like a fire and they had to stop filming and um, Deborah, Deborah Carr would, she famously wore sunglasses to the set because it was so bright. Wasn't there, wow. there was one scene and I can't remember what was going on, but it got really bright. Maybe it was right after that one you just mentioned, Reem, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. It just, to me, that's her just kind of flipping out a little bit, but um, they took all the lights, like every yeah. light they had, every light they had 50 yeah. lights or something and, mm -hmm. you know, focused it in on that. Well, I think near the yeah. end of the movie when she's like really grilling into Miles and he's like pouring sweat off his face. Now I'm wondering like. That might have just been real. <laughs> it might have just been really yeah. hot. <laughs> that poor kid. <laughs> poor kid. That was in the green, the greenhouse scene. Yeah, that was actually yeah. one of the darker scenes. So I don't know if it was the lights, but right. yeah, maybe yeah. by that it point they were scene. all. Yeah. Um, I you know what? We should have probably mentioned at the top. If you're listening to this and you haven't watched the movie, but you just like to listen, uh, it's on YouTube for free. The Innocence yeah. mm -hmm. 1961. If you search that out, you can find it and watch it for free. That's how I watched it. Yep, yep. Yeah. If you're curious. Yeah. I did post it in the comments. Someone did ask oh, cool. if it was streaming yeah, somewhere. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know if it is, but you can get it here uh, and watch for free. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully others saw that too. Um, yeah. But yeah. So what else? What What's a favorite scene? Anyone have a favorite scene well, that, they, that really I, stood out? I My favorite scene is actually the one you were talking about, Rima, where uh, the outdoor scene where Ms. Giddin sees Peter on the parapet because I could not believe on rewatch how packed this scene is full of symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism that I would love to talk about in, in throughout, but I think that this scene to me symbolizes her loss of innocence, her official um, sexual awakening and thereby losing her innocence because she's this pastor's daughter um super uh 40 year old woman who is still i i want to say intact it's pretty mm -hmm. obvious she's a virgin um which is crazy but so uh, if you it's, it's don't a big mind part of the story in my opinion yeah and yeah. And, and apparently uh you know obviously in the book she was supposed to be much younger she's in her 20s um like this young fresh woman this is probably her first job out of the house right. but and this they, is her first job it seems and this like. yeah this still is yeah, yeah. She's, she's very yeah and mm -hmm. but they purposely cast um deborah carr at, uh, because of her age and i think it's so effective for mm -hmm. the frustration she's had that much more time to be repressed right and in this day you know she's clearly up. yeah right she's clearly chosen not the motherhood path in life she's chosen the um still taking care of children but the governess path the spinster path like she's kind of yeah. none like in her lifestyle cho choice you know um but we see she can't help have this kind of sexual frustration and she kind of gets sexually awakened and she arrives at at the house bringing with her already she's in a state she, she nothing has happened yet and she already she's she can't sleep through the first night she's um restless you know and that's already in her like it's not it didn't happen after she got here so if you yeah. don't mind i'll just kind of like take you through the imagery of the scene and like explain to my interpretation of the symbolism and just see what you guys think 
So we see her outside. Uh, we hear Flora singing, but we actually never see her. And at first, Ms. Giddens looks happy about the singing. And she's like, oh, how, how lovely she's singing a song. And she's cutting these wet, dewy white roses, which is such a symbol, I think, for Ms. Giddens. And her, even her shirt in the scene looks like a white rose. It's got those ruffles, and she's kind of the physical embodiment of this white rose. But at the beginning of the scene, we see it like dewy with all the the water like on the petals, and that kind of to me symbolizes you know like four players. You know, not to get too right. graphic with it, but uh, and then <laughs> she sees the cupid like, and what it looks like is it's holding adult hands that looks like they were ripped off of an adult, like a child ripped mm-hmm. an adult's That's why I thought off. they were feet because they were bigger. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're going to see a lot of hand-holding imagery um, as as it goes on. And then the singing, like you said, Rima, stops and there's silence. And she looks worried all of a sudden and suspicious. Like she feels a presence there. And then she sees Peter on the parapet through this like blazing sunshine. And, and it almost looks like it pains her. And she drops the roses and dunks them completely in the water like as soon as she sees this man she drowns her her roses or herself getting like completely wet like submerged and it's almost like his beauty or his handsomeness hurts her like she's pained seeing it for the first time and she's drawn to him and she exits the garden gate almost like you know leaving her little perfect um garden of eden And as she exits the garden gate, she's showered with this, like, these rose petals fall down on her head. And it gave me, like, a wedding kind of vibe or something. Hmm. Um, Like, she's becoming a woman, you know? And she's magnetically pulled to this man. And all the time, these white birds are flapping, fluttering loudly. And she has to use this hidden side door, like a hidden um, entrance, and kind of symbolizing, like, a hidden part of her psyche. She opens the door and goes up to the staircase, um, kind of exploring like repressed curiosity and maybe like bravery. And as soon as she opens the door, we hear these like insects buzzing and it's almost like entering masculine territory, like almost enemy territory. Like it has a warlike kind of feel to it, like a soldier. Um, And she goes up and she sees Miles on the parapet and he's literally covered in birds, white birds, which could symbolize birds, you know, freedom. And then she says, I thought I saw a man looking at me and Miles, well, perhaps it was me. And there's constantly a comparing of him, this little boy to a man. And then he he says something like, I hope you won't need glasses. You're much too pretty. And this is like complimenting her while at the same time suggesting she's getting, she's getting on in years, you know? And, uh, then she confesses to him that she hasn't been sleeping, her mental restlessness. She groans and moans in her sleep. Um, she's frustrated. And then he also discredits Flora. You know, Flora invents things or imagines things. And she says, oh, yeah, just like poor, silly Mrs. Giddens. And then so maybe calling she's already calling out herself like jokingly, but she's calling out herself. Maybe I'm mad. Maybe it's in my head. Maybe I'm making it up. So we're, you know, the seed of doubt. And then after that, from then on, she wears dark colors. She wears black or gray, except for one scene when they're outside. But for the rest of it, most I mean, completely, except for that one other scene, she wears black or gray, I think, symbolizing her loss of innocence. So that's my take yeah. on that scene. <laughs> Interesting. I, I, I like that. There was some, I did do some digging after watching and yeah, there's, 
I mean, the the turn of the screw, and then even this. I mean, there is a lot of psychosexual meaning and yeah. like symbolism. That's really what this is. And so you mentioned the roses yeah. and the flowers. And one thing that I picked up on immediately and kept there's almost every time she touches or yes. handles the flowers, the petals start falling yes. off. They're kind of crumbling. It's like mm-hmm. this every it's it's a little bit more of this breaking down of that innocence and that purity and that, you know, like it's or every time she's handling with it, it's like falling apart. You know, like um, an overbloomed rose, like so, uh, you know, like a, a rose that's it's it's beautiful because it's fully opened. But mm-hmm. it's like they say they, they refer to that a lot in Victorian literature, like a woman in her last bloom means like she's mm. right at the point where she's about to get a little too ripe. Like she's not <laughs> she's not necessarily like the wrinkles are starting to show like in you're getting in your 40s, like you better get married soon. You know, you, we mm-hmm. thinking of having Spinster. kids because, yeah, like it's her last her last breath of youth, you know, is like represented yeah, by these God. roses that are I feel that, that are so delicate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like and so delicate they're falling apart like like all you have to do is touch her and she's vibrating with like ecstasy you know she's know. so yeah it's right on the edge she's a mass of of um she's got all of this repressed lust and, and yearning yeah. and up. she's ashamed of it and so she's projecting it out onto everyone and everything around her and then judging them and at one point, mm-hmm. Mrs. Gross says, you can only judge yourself. And that's exactly what she's doing, even though she doesn't know it. She's judging herself when she's actually pointing at everybody else. Right. Which I, I guess is another pin, pin, you know, in the, in the column of if it is all in her head. I mean, is she's, it's the stories she's hearing about Peter and, and Miss Jessel, uh, that, you know, she's hearing a lot of very, you know, in detail as far as a 1961 movie is going to give you uh you know stories of their interactions and their lust for each other and you know she's even hearing the ghosts of them you know things that are happening between them and she's obsessed where it gets, with yeah she, she gets sexual. obsessed with it mm-hmm. and so that's where i mean <laughs> we really think about it it's quite disturbing and dark and not good but but she doesn't have anybody to put that those kind of things on other than Miles, who's in the house. And yeah. so and Flora. I, she's she's already um before Miles even appears, uh yeah. someone uh is it Miss Gross or tells her that he's you know, can be a handful or something like that. And she's right. like worried that it's gonna be a corrupting influence or something. And mm-hmm. she's already afraid that she's gonna act out with this kid, I think. And then when she meets him, he's so charming and handsome right away and they're in the carriage and yeah. she's staring at him. Well <laughs> like, and she's all yeah. like <laughs> And when she says that yeah, she's like, oh and w- because when they find out that he was expelled and, you know, that they're afraid that he'll corrupt the children or something and she and i know miss miss gross made a comment and she's like well what are you afraid he's gonna corrupt you and that really stood yeah. out to me i was like uh-huh. yeah and she is she is she's afraid yeah can and i go she, through like, my take her. on it yeah go yeah. she like she laughs at her almost bullyingly like the children do there's like this weird yeah. way that everyone laughs at her in this in this oh, and yeah. it almost it almost makes you feel like that's not how they're really laughing in real they're life not. but she hears it louder she hears yeah. it like yeah. because they're making fun of at me at the end when um miles says we all knew you were a hussy 
Oh, yeah. He didn't say that. No, he didn't say that. I don't think so I don't think so. That's just what Mm -hmm. she's hearing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's all about, so she's lived this sheltered, repressed life. Her father was a preacher. They had to be quiet because he was preparing a sermon. They had a small house where no secrets were allowed, although I think there were a lot of secrets in her head. Um, I, I love when she says, I'm sometimes very foolish, but I'm not cruel. My father taught me to love people and help them, even if they refused my help, even if it hurt them sometimes. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's what her father did to her, right? Just yeah. enforced mm-hmm. his beliefs on her. And um, yeah, so this is her first position and and her first job. And she's restless in her sleep because in the daytime, she can project everything out to everyone else, although she still seems kind of impacted and affected by everything. But when she's asleep, it's all inside. Um, And let's see. She says to... She says a a few times, I want to do is save the children, not destroy them. Don't ever say that. Like, I don't want to destroy children. <laughs> I hope she didn't put that in her like, resume. Why, why would yeah. you? No one said you <laughs> did. <laughs> Nobody said anything about that. But I yeah. think the children represent her own innocence, mm-hmm. you know, and she does. She's protesting too much. She wants mm-hmm. to get rid of yeah. her innocence. Uh, the whole thing with the uncle, like, she keeps yeah. talking about how charming he is, how, I mean, he, she's the saying, uncle. I didn't have much choice. Their uncle's most persuasive. All he, he didn't, he just said, yeah, you got the job. That was how he was persuasive. Like yeah, she's right. projecting this controllingness on everyone else because she doesn't oh, yeah. want to have to take responsibility for her own, like what she really wants. And I think she is taken with this guy because he's a hedonist. He, he, he's, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. he doesn't want to have anything to do with the children. There's no innocence in his life, yep. you know, and th- that's why she's kind of drawn to that. Uh, so anytime she's talking about someone else being a powerful influence, Quint or whatever, I think she wants that. She wants to be taken with, or at least part of her, but she doesn't um, fully uh, realize that herself or at all, actually. Um, at one time when, uh, Flora's screeching her little pencil and Miles says she's begging for attention oh, and affection, yeah. this reflects her too. And when Miss yep. Gross kisses her on her cheeks, she seems very emotive about it. Like even with that little bit of affection, she's mm-hmm. just, she can't hardly contain it herself with it. And so, um, what else? She, she, Peter Quint, uh, she's very judgmental of him. She uses words like indecent or obscene, but those are sexy words. And um, she says, she talks about uh, Jessel as being hungry for Quint, for his lips, for his arms. And then she has that whole scene where she hears them, the children are listening and they're giggling. And, you know, she just imagines them having sex. And, uh, you know, Mrs. Gross said, they had sex in the house sometimes with the doors open. So they, there is evidence that nothing I'm saying is right and that they were actually a bad influence and they're evil demons or whatever. So I don't know, maybe some of that came into it where they actually weren't great influences, but um, now she, so then she starts thinking that they're ghosts and that the kids know about them and that um, they want to inhabit these kids. And all she has to do is, get them to admit it and then it will cast out the devils 
And she freaks out on Mrs. Gross when she won't say that she saw Jessel out at, at the lake. How can you say that as a, though you too were a complete innocent? So she equates seeing these ghosts, these corrupting, indecent ghosts with not being innocent. And she sees them. So that means she doesn't see herself as innocent. But um, she says, you know, those two and what influence they've had over the children. And it frightened you. When I came here, you were still frightened. And why? Because you felt they weren't really dead. And despite all that, you turn on me. You blame me. And all I want to do is save the children, not destroy them. Don't you know that? That was the second time she said that. Mm -hmm. But the vibe I'm getting is that deep down, she just feels guilty for her obsession with sex and lust. And these ghosts represent that. But she wants to project that on everyone else. It's you, not me. And this is I just want to protect it. So, um, then, you know, when Miles says she's a damned hussy, a damn dirty minded hag, you never fooled us. We always knew. Ha 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 ha. That's just all in her total, her imagination. I guess we already said that. And so then the stuff with Miles, I mean, Miles kisses her. I think my Miles, he comes off as a good boy at first, but you find out, I think he kills animals at the school. And uh, mm-hmm. so in my interpretation of that, he's just troubled because his, well, I don't even know where his father is. Do we know that? But his uncle was his father his, figure. His, their father is. His parents, parents died. Died. Yeah. died. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so he has no, like, I think he's just acting out because he has no parental attention on him. Right. That's my t- take on it. Um, and I also do believe that Peter Quint probably was kind of a, yeah, abusive, inappropriate, yes. uh, you know, for sure. But, you know, but, but Jessel, you know, I mean, on him um, for sure but, that he definitely did those kind of things where, you know, yeah. gave him the wrong mindset on a lot of different things. I'm sure. But Miss Giddens hears all of this and just turns it into a lot of stuff. That's mm-hmm. not really going on. It just feeds into her psychosis and everything. And so with miles, when he, he's just a little rambunctious, sometimes he goes out barefoot or, uh, I loved when he reached to grab her hand and then she went to take it and he like pat that jello bunny or whatever it was. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. hilarious. Haha, he's a little rascal. Yellow. But then when he, he kissed her and she didn't pull away, I, I think mm-hmm. that she's, you know, thinks that he, she equates him with Peter Quint and that he's possessed with her. So then in the end, I'm not exactly sure what happened in the end. To me, I think he, she probably killed the kid and then she kisses him and it's pedophilia. <laughs> that's what I think. Yeah. That's, so that's I, I took a lot more detailed notes, but I don't want to take up the whole podcast, but yeah. that's kind of the basic gist of what I thought. Those are all your on. thoughts, Jason. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's kind of what it comes down to. I think now. what puts it in that camp of it's in her head there is that, yeah, I mean, she's at the end, especially with Miles, but if, I mean, she's acting very inappropriately, but then for her to, oh, but he's being possessed by a grown man. So that's why, you know, that there are a lot of those things that, that can do that. But then what kind of bats it back into the idea, I was like, but something has to be going on is this sudden and abrupt death of Miles at the end where I was like, but then that feels like, because what else would have happened? Like, I feel like there had to have been some kind of supernatural connection or something. And that's where I think they leave you with that. So you still really don't know. I think there's a possibility or there's a version of this or an interpretation of it where there's nothing at all supernatural. And that's the most interesting to me, kind of like yellow jackets. Mm -hmm. I really hope with yellow jackets that nothing supernatural is going on and it's all psychological that that's way more interesting to me than, than anything supernatural happening because then it's, it just opens up this like people. 
what what causes a 10 year old boy to just fall over dead <laughs> like yeah i feel like like because <laughs> it's an unreliable narrator that mm-hmm. we're seeing things as she perceives them and what she we didn't see maybe was that she snapped his neck just like he killed the pigeon or something mm-hmm. like that but that's really me just sort of speculating yeah, yeah. i don't know well i mean with all the ambiguity around this film and kind of letting you decide like what the truth is or what really happened was was she just in this high level of paranoia her anxiety that that just escalated all throughout the film all the way until the end i mean that was that was um very obvious i think so i i'm not questioning that but you know i don't think that i mean i feel like those the ghosts did exist because we did see them. I mean, the camera tells us that. So I didn't I, see anything. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but I mean, so I think that they're there, but I mean, how, how much of that, like, did they actually possess the children and, you know, those events? I mean, I think that's, you know, you can speculate on that and, and make, make a decision because I think it could, could go either way. But I feel like, you know, it wasn't like she was looking at something and it wasn't there. I, I, I do think that she saw something. I think that the the cameras at least telling she us that much. She did. Do you uh, think yeah, right. The she kids saw she anything thinks. and they're lying. Yeah. What do you think, Rima? What that the children are lying or that pe- that they're mm-hmm. lying when when she's like, look, look, there they are. Because um, I think there is an interpretation where those kids are lying. They do see everything, and but they the. Mrs. Gross told them not to tell anyone, you know? Yeah. Wow. I, wow. I don't know if I know, like, like I said, I don't, I haven't really landed one way or another. I, I definitely feel, yes, she was sexually repressed and she was projecting all of this onto the kids. But I also think that they're, and I think that also that with this relationship between Quint and Miss Jessel, um, and if they were, you know, just, I guess having sex in every single room uh, at all hours of the day and having this affair while the children are around and they, you know, if um, Miss Gross saw them, then the children probably saw them too. And I think that that probably over-sexualized these children because why in the world would, you know, the things that are coming out of Miles's mouth, you know, and the things that he would say. He's very adult. Yeah. It's, it's just not stuff you would typically hear out of a a 10 year old's, um, mouth unless they had been through something and i feel like either something was done to him or just by witnessing the things and the happenings in the house could have caused him to act that way i don't know if it was oh could he have been possessed by quint and that was why he was acting the way that he was or is it because of what he had either witnessed or maybe even done to him um while they Mm, were still alive you know that caused him to act that way i'm i don't know honestly i haven't really made up my mind but it could be either i think yeah yeah Mm There is a, an ambiguity throughout of what happened to these children. Um, were they were they sexually abused or just exposed to knowledge of sex or physical something? We don't know if it was f- actually physically done to them or not, but we do know that Flora seems extremely high strung. I think that very quickly she goes from zero to a million, but I don't know how much of that screaming and how much of that her freaking out is actually happening because we see everything through Ms. Giddens' perspective. We see her face, the, the ghost is always preceded by her reaction of the ghost, mm-hmm. except for at the very end, spins around, 
Peter Quint is among all of the statues and then Miles dies. But up until that point, all of the ghost sightings, everything, the whole story really is, I mean, she, Deborah Carr is in every single scene and of those scenes, she's in 98% of this film. Uh, just her image mm-hmm. is what we're mm-hmm. looking at. So we very rarely leave her side and we don't know if she's an unreliable narrator or not. Um, the Miles thing too makes me think he he when he confesses of why he was sent home from school, uh, why he was expelled, he couldn't sleep through the night. He was hearing voices at night. He was awake at night. He was scaring the other boys with the things he was saying. I mean, call me crazy, but that sounds like a child who is probably sexually abused, you know, like when he lays his, his head down in his bed, he's not comfortable there because maybe that's where things happen to him, mm-hmm. you know. With Flora, I mean, she really lost it when Miss Giddens t- grabbed her yeah, and grabbed said, her. Mm-hmm. You know, this woman who used to take care of you that was basically your mother is is a ghost and she's right there. Admit it. Yeah. I could sort of buy that. That might freak a kid out and just make her decide, oh, crap, I thought I had a new mother, but she's nuts, you know, and just go to pieces over it. She screams, I hate you. I hate you. Well, in her, to me, her reaction, if she was only reacting to Miss Giddens, which clearly would frighten a child, but it seemed like she was... um, like she had been through a trauma, like it was a bit of a yeah, trauma right. response from yeah. Flora. So right. I'm like, well, yeah. what happened to these kids before? Because it's like, yeah. I don't feel like this just one uh, instance or interaction with Miss Giddens would have caused her to react that way. I mean, she just she was literally like screaming the entire way, you know, to the house. And, and yeah, that wasn't great. And I don't blame her for being upset. But I was like, wow, she, that that's like a very over the top. And I know Flora is kind of an over the top kind of character. I thought that was interesting that in the movie and i mean Blind and Manor, miles too yeah that they're that mm-hmm. they were like the exact same way very precocious and you know very um animated and but i was like this girl's been through something and i don't know if maybe it was the loss of yeah. of, of miss jessel or something but this girl's been through some try and miles too but you know just the way she's reacting seemed over the top for just this one scene between them yeah it, it feels like it could be a one-two punch of like well, Giddens is there yelling at her and freaking her out and like hurting her, grabbing her yeah. so hard. But then also you're talking about Miss Jessel, who if some of the things that, you know, that we can assume or some of those theories, they may be some traumatic, you know, things that have come up with Miss Jessel. Oh, that woman who who put me through the A, B and C don't you know, maybe oh, you're telling me she's back also. And then maybe there's just this trauma and other things that could be flooding into her brain as well. So, yeah, there's definitely more than just what Miss Giddens is doing in that time. But yeah, so it it paints to like, if you want to take the idea or the thought that the ghosts aren't there, the kids are not being possessed and that all is in Miss Giddens head. I think at least the story or the thought of the effect that Jessel and Quint had on those kids. I feel like that is still true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it, I oh, can yeah. see that. They had an uh, effect. They had an yeah. impact on them heavily, hugely. And and that's played out through um, Giddens, her imaginings. We see the influence um, Miss Giddens is imagining um, 
her imagination is just going crazy and she's uh, laying awake at night seeing Peter Quint take Miles' shoulder and walk him, you know, talking to him and and we see the the ladies dancing together. So she's very disturbed by the fact that these two people were clearly parenting these children and like teaching them how to be like them. Like, dance like me, Flora. This is how to be a woman. And, you know, Peter Quint is like, okay, son, let's go have a man, man-to-man chat and this is how to be a man. And she's very disturbed by these uh, plaguing her these thoughts mm-hmm. you know and she or sees, just modeling bad behavior for them right yeah yeah exactly she sees um she blames it all on them and doesn't want to give the children any agency doesn't want to give herself any agency that we are innocent we leave the innocence alone like she's at all costs mm-hmm. more than anything i love children more than anything and it's like okay <laughs> woman why you gotta why you gotta See, say it like that though you know now you've made it I even yeah. question whether she cares about children at all. I, I wondered if she made that all up just to get into this guy's office because she seems like, yeah, I get, I took the job. I'm like, that's why you were there to get the job. And he can be, I, I lost myself when I was there and I, I don't know, maybe that's reading too much into it, but what, she's she, never, she lost herself when she was where she said something about, I got uh, t- when I was in London, um, I got swept she was, away. Or, she was wondering whether or not she should take the the job, and and the uncle was very persuasive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I she sent her resume where we know the first line was I you know I care so much about children or whatever more than anything I love more children. than anything more than anything. and um but then she seemed to be surprised at herself that he convinced her to take this job that she supposedly applied for and went to an interview to. So that's why mm-hmm. it was a little bit like, really? Which is weird. And, so that made me question like, well, what, why were you really there then if you didn't think you were going to take the job? Yeah. yeah. What were you going to say? Rima? I was just say, which is weird when she's like, oh, he had, you know, um, convincing me to take this job. And I'm like, he just seemed to be happy to have a warm body. Anybody. Any, anyone right. to like, Go watch these kids no so he didn't have to. That's fine. He's like, you're, you're yeah, fine. You have a pulse. So you're good. Go watch these kids so I don't have to like deal with them. So oh. it was just so bizarre, her, her, the way that she described that. And I'm like, I did not get that. Like, they're like, oh, well, he's, yeah. he's so charming and he's so persuasive. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. His reaction was more of that times like. Take the kids away from me. Lose my number. Don't ask yeah, me. Right. Like, yeah. That was I, he, it's like it's like he is forcing her. He, she totally does say it. Like he forced me into this uncomfortable position of authority. She, throughout this whole film, she is being constantly confronted with, "You're gonna make a choice. You get. You're in charge, lady. You're in charge. You're in charge." Miss Gross is like, "Well, I don't know. What do we do? What do we do?" And she's like, "Ah, uh, ah. Uh, what would what would his uncle do?" Because uh, she's in this position where she has to deal with these children without bothering him. But but she finds a way to try to bother him constantly. She's like, well, I, I have to go to him. I have to write to him. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, and now I can't leave because it's too serious. So you take Flora and I'll stay here. But she's she's in this super uncomfortable position of having to um, find her own voice and find her own like autonomy and make a fucking call. And women in that time, Victorian times, did not do that. And women at the time watching this must have been like, what would I do in that position? Because women had no authority. They had no agency they had no you know say in anything so this was um for a woman who is single in the world a very scary place to be in the turn of the century you know she's confronted with so much that she just does not know how to deal with 
And it's literally driving her insane. When it sounds like she's never had to, like if she's right. lived with yeah. her father, her parents, and she's, you know, of a certain age, you know, and, and has not had any other life experiences. It's like she's just always had, you know, been told what to do and lived this life a certain way. And now that she's in this position where she is having to, like, make these decisions where it sounds like she is not in a good position <laughs> to be in, at least mentally. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, that's probably where a lot of that's coming from. She's totally. Out of I feel relevant. like we all, we all had this sense. I feel like as we're talking, that she is like this in this girlish fantasy world, and I just get the sense that in her mind, she's got this fantasy where I'm going to do such a good job as governess to these kids that the uncle will leave his rakish lifestyle and mm. he will be so impressed mm. and taken with me that he'll leave all of those London women and come move to the country and we'll all be a family together. And like, you can just see her writing in her little diary at night, like, you know, uh, like, like, Mr. You and know, Mrs. Girl. In her, in her binder. Yeah, like drawing, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, she's like this I'm going to be Mrs. Uncle. Yeah, yeah. I, see, I think there's a part the of her that doesn't even want there to be kids. She wants to go off and live this life that he's living. I, that's why, you know, the whole imagery of destroying the children is to me, that's about destroying her own innocence and just getting to be obscene and indecent. Well, keep in mind, Miles, at this time, little boys went to boarding school. That's what happened. You didn't, he wasn't bad. He wasn't sent away for any special reason other than that's just what yeah. he did. So when she took this job, she was told you will just be seeing Miles at at, at Christmas time. I mean, little boys mm -hmm. were not raised by their families. They were taught to, to be men at their boys, you know, academy, school, whatever, in London or wherever he went. And so she was under the impression that she was going to go and just deal with the little girl and just have fun playing with with her little doll and then all of a sudden here's miles here's miles oh boy miles making me have all the hello feels. dear hello dear yeah you know and he shows up and he's got all this swagger and he brings her flowers and his little three-piece suit off the train and she's <laughs> like and she refuses to believe anything is bad with him she, it cracked me up when she was you know miss gross is well what happened did you did he tell you why he was sent from school and she immediately thinks oh it must have been a misunderstanding I'm not going to ruin his homecoming. I'm not going to, I'll confront him later, but you know, mm. I'm not going to ruin his homecoming all because of some silly headmaster, you know, making the <laughs> wrong call. It must've been another boy. It's like, he totally got sent home from school. They don't just make those kind of little, you know, errors in the system. Like he did something. Right. Yeah. Something and bad. She, and well, she refuses to pin it on him. There was something about him out at night hurting i think animals right and they would screech and it would bother the boys that's what i know that wasn't in it. there interesting you got that out yeah i think it was in there i i need to get the quote but um they said he hurt animals i think so i, I, think I don't that's, think that was, that was heavily ever, implied it was heavily implied but I, it was never a line yeah because he said he was out there hurting things and the screaming um right okay hurting yeah yeah you're right. bothered the children or something right. like that but um, I love Mrs. Gross, how <laughs> she's just like, uh, uh, okay, there's ghosts. Okay, what do we do? <laughs> like the whole time as crazy as she was getting, she she pushed back a little, but mostly she's like, Okay, okay, ma'am. You know, just trying. Well, I think her, her <laughs> sounds great. Let's do that. Okay, I think. Fine. I think that's. I think. I don't think she's allowed to disagree. I, think I know. That, you yeah. know, her. I don't think she ever believes her personally myself. But I think that you know, of someone of her class, she. This is the boss. So yeah. yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Whatever you say, ma'am. You sure you want to call the 
vicar about this i don't yeah she's don't do that it'll just bring all our air our dirty laundry no come on you know and she's all like i'll help you but tell me what to do (laughs) because i think from her point of view it's what am i what would i tell the vicar i would tell the vicar we got a crazy governess up in here and that's this is my truth you know she's in here trying to cast ghosts out of the children i don't even know what's going on for that governess not (laughs) yes ghosts and demons yeah let's get the extra but you know yeah it kind of but they did kind of for me anyway play up some of the creepiness of of the kids of miles and stuff even though you know because Mm -hmm. they would they would have like what could be almost considered like playtime but it was also you could also read it as like malevolent like with miles like choking her and stuff coming up behind behind her and grabbing okay, her yes. and stuff you know yes so there are some instances that i still kind of struggle with you know am could, i hurting you or i'm hurting you really okay yeah i mean it was just like bizarre and i don't know how to take that it's like well could he be possessed or could he have seen something to make because i feel like especially like with children who have been through and not this isn't like blanket because it doesn't um affect everyone the same way but you know children who've um been abused can the same things that have been done to them or things that they've seen done they in turn can then do those things um so it just it's like well could he be possessed by something bad and acting out or could he have seen something or something um that he had witnessed and he's then doing the same thing like he's curious about it and he's you know doing the same thing to to miss Giddens. so i don't know it's kind of weird that's where i'm still kind of like well this way that way yeah when miles he scares her he stands over her dominating her claiming her saying now you're my prisoner he's behind her you know standing over her in this like domineering position and puts his hands around her neck kind of like the bird later with a snapped neck and she says, let me go. You're hurting me. And he says, am I? With a smile on his face. And she says, let me go. And he says, why? And she says, I told you, you're hurting me. I mean it. Do you? It's like, you know, and later we learned Peter Quint was abusive physically to Miss Jessel and mm-hmm. she liked it. So it's almost like Miles is expecting Miss Giddens to enjoy this torture, to enjoy the pleasure of being choked. Exactly. Like, don't you love my hands around and your neck? And she kind of did, it's I like, think. Where did well, yeah, mm-hmm. and and it's like, well, where did he learn to to seek that out? You know, I, I mean, and then mm. begs the question: Was he taught this by the book, by in words, in a conversation by Peter, or is it just the sense of the ghost possessing him, or is it the physical? You know, he sees the ghost. We just don't know. Here, uh, so he says, sometimes I hurt things, and sometimes at night when everything was dark, yeah, they screamed. Okay. The masters heard about it. They said, I frightened the other boys. Right, right. And because of the pigeon or whatever that was, I just thought it seems like mm-hmm. at night he was hurting animals. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly what that seems like. <laughs> and then he's like, he's got that dead bird in his yeah. bed, which he says he's keeping warm. And Do you like him less now, Rima? A little bit less? Well, <laughs> I, yeah, it was it was creepy. I don't I don't know if yeah. I really said I liked Miles. He he's given he gave, oh, he gave I, me the yeah. gave me the creeps <laughs> like the entire yeah. time, yeah. and I'm like I don't know I if think, this kid. You know, when is, you first see him, you're like, oh, he's he's adorable, he's charming, he's a little flirty, but it seems harmless. But then as it goes, you're like, 
oh no, this kid's got some deep seated issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah, there's definitely. I, mean, I still felt for him throughout the whole thing for sure, especially that one really emotional scene. And then mm-hmm. I think there was an interview with the actor just a few years ago. You know, really. He's, He's in his like 70s, 70, yeah. yeah. It was like a TED thing or something. And um Oh TED yeah, talk the, the, the TED does talk. TED talk, yeah. 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 And he said he'd just been through a loss before he filmed that, I yeah. think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that was he was raw, you know. This child such a good job. This child is incredible. Probably I I want to <laughs> I want to say it, probably the best tr- acting performance I've ever seen on screen by a child ever. I can't think of a better one. I really can't. He blew me away. Well, it's pretty heavy, heavy content for for kids, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In in this like film. that. The, the, He's so self possessed. The the moment when he does have that bird in his bed, you know, I I feel like that's such a metaphor for like sexual perversion or something like the, mm-hmm. that. He's cradling it and keeping it warm, and and then right after that, he says he kisses her, mm-hmm. and uh, way too long way too long and and he says he wanted to he wanted to shock her he wanted to he didn't want get to be her boring. he didn't want to be boring yeah and so he ran out in his bare feet and oh god <laughs> these this is way too long but she didn't pull away i was just yeah. saying it was it was both it was creepy on both sides because he he lingered too long he didn't pull away she's just allowing it to happen and not pulling away um just mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah uncomfortable and i you know i didn't read the turn of the screw i read that there's interpretations that some of the sexual repression is in there but my impression is that or my sense of it is that it's not as overt as in this movie that they really played it up in the movie do you remember jade well sorry that they that the whole sexual repression angle You'd have to read into it more in the book. It's oh no, it was very, very. It was almost more in the book. Yeah. Oh really? The sexual, the sexual overtones are like really, really there. Like it seems like these children are being raped by ghosts in the book. Oh my gosh! Like it's very severe. Yeah, yeah, it's intense. Well, I know um, the book was the book was completely scandalous when it came when it. Mm. I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that the screenplay was penned by Truman Capote. And mm. playwright William Archibald, and I believe that they had asked Truman Capote to play on th- that whole this whole Freudian fantasy um, and the repressed right. sexuality. Um, so I know yeah. that they did sprinkle that in there, and they asked him, and because it wasn't in there originally, and they asked him to add that, and he and he did. Yeah, it was based on what was his name, Archibald? You said he had William a play Archibald. in the fifties, yeah. and it was overtly supernatural with not maybe none of this psychosexual stuff and this director was like boring so he mm-hmm. called in Truman Capote to shift it and you know um at the time when the novel was released Freud had just published um his first work on hysteria um, in 1895, so just a few years before uh, 1898, when Henry James wrote the novel, and it totally fascinated the public. So this was like hot, mm. hot topic, like oh, crazy mm. women, crazy people, and and then I think it kind of started the whole th- this 
film really introduced so much. It originates like the cinematic rhetoric that is used in these things that have become tropes now, like the singing creepy child and the crazed governess caretaker woman. Like, you know, you got The Shining with um, um, Shelley Duvall running around with the crazy eyes, you know, and yeah, the weird creepy. Yeah, it a Shining vibe. Oh, totally. Movie. Totally. Mm. So much of The Shining. I was shocked how much Shining I saw in this. Hmm. But yeah, this film originates so much of the, you know, things that now we're, we consider like old, tired, old hat tricks that, you know, horror movies do, like the creepy antique attic storage with all the toys. And, you know, that's like this was the first yeah. film to show that all was that like stuff. the creepiest scene to me, like traditionally classic creepy was the hide yeah. and seek. The, the hide and seek moment. Thing just bobbing back and yeah. forth. And yeah. No, yeah. Didn't, didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> and and isn't it strange that Flora says, I, I was just wondering, like, that music box, I mean, I'm I'm under the impression that it was Miss Jessel's. Everyone else? Mm-hmm. I think so. Like, I think so, because Flora says it was hers. Wasn't the, like, picture of yeah, yeah, Peter was, was in it, there. like, connected yeah, with it? Yeah. 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 And then Flora's like, it was mine, and, oh, Miss Gross must have hidden it in He's here. He's a liar. I like when and Flora's Flora a liar, yeah. mimicking the motions of the music box girl out in the gazebo later yeah and she was doing a pretty good job yeah just like miss dressel had taught her ladies dances do you guys (laughs) want to talk about the scene where she sees peter quint um in for the first time because right after right after she finds that photo only after she sees his face do we get his face now finally a a second later she's Mm -hmm. she can put a face to this man Mm -hmm. which is another piece of evidence that it's all in her head right exactly (laughs) and it's funny that it was two seconds ago miles was choking her and then peter quint appears behind her in the same position that domineering Mm -hmm. position and he comes through this statue like the statue like morphs into him and obviously statues are everywhere here and you know rep like some kind of these cemented permanent fixtures, these domineering, overbearing, all knowing, all seeing. Um, except when they disappear sometimes. Except when, <laughs> yeah, when, right? Um, but I yeah. also read that they're like representative. I didn't do a lot of reading on this, but I just skimmed through a couple things and hedonistic past, like the mm. type of figures that they represent. Right. Greek figures or something. Hmm. And. There's a, I wanted to tell you guys, there's a cool story about like the shooting that happened with that scene with Deborah Carr. They shot the, the scene um, where she's supposed to have the reaction to Peter Quint behind the curtain. They shot that scene and, and they weren't happy with it. No one was satisfied with it. Like Deborah Carr wasn't and no one was. And so then the guy who played Peter Quint, Peter, uh, oh, his name, his name is also Peter. Um... Peter Wingard. Um, he said he he suggested, oh, let's shoot the scene again and don't tell Deborah, but I'll stand behind the curtain. She won't see me or anything, <laughs> but I'll just stand there. And, and as she did it one time and she said, that's the one because I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand up on end. And it's awesome. Just having just having a presence there made a difference to her, even though she didn't know that the actor was standing there you know i just Hmm. thought that was so cool but um so yeah so she sees him and then she has that moment with miss gross where she's like 
she is hot and bothered. She's like, he was staring past me into the house as if he were hunting someone. Uh, and what was he like, miss? We had dark curling handsome. hair. And the hardest, the coldest eyes. Would you say he was very <laughs> handsome, miss? Oh, yes, handsome. Very handsome and obscene. Like the fact that Peter Quinn's <laughs> handsomeness makes him more evil. Like sexual appeal is an indicator of evil oh, yeah. or something. And it excites her. She and was Mrs. Gross. Very hot and bothered. <laughs> hot and bothered, right? <laughs> yeah. And then Mrs. Gross is like, but Peter Quinn is dead. And then the children are standing there with the music box at the stairs over her again, like this levels power play. And they're laughing at her loudly. And then we see um, she saved the photo and she puts it in her own little music box, you know, or her own jewelry box. And she's drawn to it. And there's this cool little tiny scene, like transitional, where she's like pacing in her room. And it's like she's afraid to look, but she's can't help but look. And then she looks at it and she's like, oh, and just his image is shuddering to her you know and then it cuts to the dreams that she's having nightmares and like it shows her face superimposed on his image like he's playing in her mind and then after that it rains all day and all night like the drenched flower you know she's completely soaked and i thought it was funny because the rain is kind of um remember when the the children are drawing right before the hide and seek and she says oh i think that oh i see it you're you're you drew a vase of flowers and she goes no and she turns the paper and she's like it's not flowers it's a it's a rainstorm see the thunder and the lightning and she's like oh yeah now i see it it's like she thinks flora is writing drawing flowers this little she's supposed to be a little girl and she's drawing a thunderstorm like almost like predicting what's to come you know she knew mm -hmm. that's another thing that i don't know how to explain she seemed to know that miles was coming home before anyone else yeah did. well and miles so, miles mm -hmm. says later i know what flora is thinking even before she thinks it so, yeah, so there that, is that doesn't jive with my filter of this story not being at all supernatural <laughs> well but then you could ask is any of this even happening at all like was that yeah. line even said or is it just right her, we're only seeing it through her perspective so how reliable of a narrator is she mm -hmm. just you would think know. though that if you know, we're still seeing it chronologically the way it happened. So if Flora said, Miles is coming home, whether she said it or not, Miss Giddens imagined it. And so then it came true. So that doesn't make sense. Unless it was just a lucky guess. I mean, sometimes intuition is a real thing. But yeah. the way, But the way she says it, I mean, I know that acting standards were different in the 60s and i know that this is a story that is even not in this it's supposed to be in the turn of the century so but even the way so, so what i'm saying is children would have spoken differently they would have had a different kind of cadence to their speech and they would have sounded a little bit more like this i'm a child you know like a little more <laughs> too a little too sweet you know kids mm. always had that thing in old movies and stuff but even it's sure, even temple. more yeah, right. Like Shirley Temple. It's even more though, like the way she says, Miles is coming. Miles is coming. Miles is coming. It's like, is this real? She's because this doesn't seem it's so it's, it's so abs. Yeah, it's like so <laughs> abstract and heightened. It's like, is this really happening? It just from the moment Flora starts saying that it it stands out to me as being like, is this really how this kid is? <laughs> like, that's a little extreme, you know? Hmm. Yeah, Flora is very crazy. She's delights in things like, look, it's a lovely spider eating a butterfly. Isn't it? A, <laughs> isn't it lovely? And there's a moment where 
um, Ms. Giddens first walks into the mansion and we see her head framed in this light, like a window, like a circular window. And her head is framed in it for a moment. She walks into it like perfectly. And it looks like those those photos of Jesus or Mary with the halo around their head. But the Mm. window is like one of those. um, It looks like a spider web. There's like a center, a circle in the center with all these like lines outward. And so like for a moment, it looks like she's the butterfly caught in the in the Mm. web. I saw that the second time I watched it. I was like, ooh, imagery (laughs) given me symbolism. (laughs) butterflies and spider webs that's cool yeah a lot of a lot of really good imagery uh in the film yeah um the horses and the birds as well that are associated with miles um symbolizing the pride and freedom of these animals like gallant he's gallantly riding this horse and impressing her and thrilling her and mm-hmm. he's oh, i didn't oh, see you there oh i didn't know you were watching oh hello did you see my marvelous <laughs> jump and as soon as he does the jump there's that crazy cacophony of birds almost like they're applauding his jump or something you know like in, in, <laughs> encouraging Fanfare. it you know yeah and and there's also another line that um peter quint was too free with everyone so there's this like freedom association with these birds and these men how masculine freedom men can choose to do whatever they want in this time like men had the ability to do whatever they wanted but he says i have no desire to to be anything but what i am a boy at bly and he kind of has this like peter pan syndrome like his uncle like he never wants to grow up and and Mm -hmm. be you know he just wants to play all day and go to his clubs and you know meet these pretty women in drawing rooms and you know he miles i feel like she kind of equates miles to his uncle a lot and maybe that's the reason for the kissing she doesn't pull away and i don't know oh yeah they're all the men in this i feel like are the same man for her almost yeah well yeah these scary like um but yet compelling figures Mm -hmm. um one more thing about the birds did you notice that we only ever see doves which are like the birds of peace and love and romance. And they symbolize like the Holy Spirit or the human soul, very pure birds that we see them, but we hear the, the audio is um, ravens and crows. And because those are not doves that we hear, we don't hear like a cooing bird. We hear mm. like a, you know, yeah, like a squawking bird. But um, the symbolism behind ravens and crows is death and rebirth and awakening. And it's a druid, druid symbol of intelligence. And um, the turtle that Flora carries around, I looked up the turtle imagery. Rupert. Yeah, Rupert. (laughs) Rupert, he gets a lot of screen time. (laughs) And, uh, you know, turtles are very, like, introverted animals. Like, they're non-confrontational. But they're also these, like, kind of cold, hard animals, kind of like Giddens in her shell, you know. Um, and throughout the film, the animal is actually kind of a very abused. Like he gets carried around in a little girl's pocket, and like she dr- almost drowns him at one point. She's like, can Tor- he just drops him in the yeah. water? Can they swim? Can they swim? Oh, swim? Oh, swim? Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't I think so. Swim, by the way, That's and then at, and then at the end, he's a tortoise, tortoise not a turtle. So I don't know. Yeah, tortoise. right. Yeah. Tortoise. Yeah. Can swim. Tortoises can't. Yeah. No, they they need to be it's a land <laughs> animal. Yeah. yeah. And then in the end, he gets thrown through a window, and it's kind of like almost the torture that she's 
going like the the uh, abuse that like Giddens is experiencing, you know, like in being tossed about in this world. But um, also turtles are a symbol of wisdom and knowledge and truth. And they can be regarded as personifying water, the moon, earth, time, immortality and fertility. And I think it's interesting because Flora is always asking questions like, what happens when you die? And where? what's this? And what's that? You know, she's always like in search of um, just uncovering what's going on, as well as Ms. Giddens mm-hmm. is she's she's desperately trying to like rip the curtain back and figure out what's going on. Tell me the truth. Say their names. And in this world where that's not encouraged, you know, everyone says, don't even mention Jessel and Peter to these children. Don't even bring them up. You know, therapy for children was not a thing, you know, and Miss Gross is like, pretend it wasn't there. Like, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Mm-hmm. Repress, repress, repress. So, you know, repressing. just <laughs> yeah. pretend it was in your imagination and then it won't bother you. Mm-hmm. It's like, and she well, says, but you can't help but let it bother you. You can't help but imagining, you know, and her imagination is really her greatest strength and her greatest undoing. I mean, I think that the movie was sort of playing with us as far as whether things are real or not. And um, when it's, let's see, I had some notes about this. Um, Flora asks if she died and isn't a good person with the Lord leaver there to walk around. And, um, Miss Gidden seems dis- disturbed, and then there's a weird sound outside, and Flora says, we must pretend we didn't hear it. That's what Mrs. Gross always says. And so that called in the question whether Miss Gross was telling the truth when she said that no one oh, yeah. called to Flora when you know Miss Giddens first got there and said, did you hear someone call? Oh, no, I didn't hear anything. Uh, and I'm like, why would Miss Gross be telling them to pretend not to hear things? Flora says, then we won't imagine things. So I think Mrs. Gross is saying... This is what my interpretation is. If she's saying there's sounds that you don't know what they are, don't make something scary out of it. She's just trying to, kids have big imaginations and she's just trying to help them um, not be scared or make something where there's nothing. But um, Miss Giddens says, as you just said, sometimes we can't help imagining things. And I think she's imagining everything and she she's saying to flora you know you can see her admit it and flora's like i can't i can't because she really can't and uh when um she's with the uncle in the beginning he says truth is very seldom understood by anybody but imaginative persons it's the first line of the whole yeah do you have an imagination yeah and i thought well that's a little counterintuitive because imagining something means making something up and it's not true. It's made up. And, uh, at one point miles tells Miss Giddens, you can't believe Flora. She invents things, imagines them. So that's the same thing. Like it's all about, I mean, they're playing with imagination, mm-hmm. but when, um, Miss, Miss Giddens says to Miss Gross, right. As she's sending them away so she can be alone with miles, please well, wait until you see miles again before you judge me. And she goes, I can't judge you, Miss. A body can only judge themselves. And, you know, I mentioned this a little earlier, but I think that's what Miss Giddens is doing. She's judging everybody else, but it's all a projection and she's really judging herself. So that's where that line actually has truth to it, where he says truth is very seldom understood by anybody, but imaginative persons, because all of this stuff that, 
um, Miss Giddens is imagining is happening outside of her is actually what's happening inside of her. So she's getting at truth through her imagination, but it's in this really indirect sort of metaphorical way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know great. if any of that made sense. No, at all. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that you di- were diving into that that imagination line because it always stood out to me that it was the very first line mm-hmm. of the whole film is, do you have an imagination? And she's, oh, yes, yes, I can answer that. Yes, I do. It's one of her qualifications, really you know. Does. It's her greatest, it's like her greatest strength and her greatest undoing because she can't help but imagine. She can't help mm. but um see things loud echoing voices spinning in her head you know and keeping her awake at night and it's shown as her mental uh state is deteriorating you know in the end she's want you know when she's wandering from room to room and she's they have that above over her head shot and she's literally literally spinning in a circle and she can't find a room to go into symbolizing like she can't find I mean, if you take the analogy of a mansion representing different parts of your psyche, it, she can't, the, all the rooms are locked. Like she can't get in to her own, mm-hmm. to a comfortable space in her own head, you know, and her eyes just and get it's dark, progressively crazier. The candlelight yeah. barely pierces the corners of the room. Yeah. It reminds me of um, Ophelia. It, there, a lot of Shakespeare stuff came up, like Ophelia, when she loses her mind in Hamlet, she wanders aimlessly from room, room to room, giving, giving out these flowers. And then um, in Othello, Desdemona says she can't get a song, a willow song out of her head um, when she's crazy for Othello, crazy for this abusive man who she loves is hating her. And she's singing this willow, sad willow mm-hmm. song. Yeah. Yeah, that song is about being alone after your lover's gone. And I think on the surface, it's about Jessel lamenting the loss of Quinn. But it's being played at the beginning of the movie, which we learn later is right after miss giddens i believe killed uh miles and it could be from her point of view now she's alone right yeah i was again going from bly manor and hearing right off the bat this oh willow whaley yeah i was like i'm having these flashbacks and chills i'm like oh god <sighs> but i mean the, the version that's in this movie is beautiful hauntingly beautiful yeah. that i really and that just, song was made for this movie the, the, did you yeah, know yeah. That? yeah yeah was, yeah yeah uh, and, and then this you know with flora humming it and singing it and just like the intonations in her voice like it is it, it's kind of this dichotomy of like it was very pleasant but also unsettling like you're like this is beautiful and i really enjoy it but but it also kind of creeps me out yeah. <laughs> which is good this, the song yeah. the song was sung by Isla Cameron, who played um, Anna, the other housemaid. And oh, it was, was written by up. it was written by Paul Dane, I think D E H N is his last name. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but yeah, she sang. She was a folk singer, and she sang the song like as if she were a little girl. I thought that was really cool. Well, are we ready to? Because I have no memory of Bly Manor, but I want to hear you guys talk about. <laughs> well, what was oh man, I haven't seen it in. <laughs> Well, since it aired, what was it, two years ago? Because last year was Midnight Mass, and then before that But you that was, studied it well, intricately. Yes, and podcasted on, a, like, a hundred other shows <laughs> since then. So, um, it's I, I remember 
high level stuff, but not details. But yeah, I think it's a good time to kind of um, flip it a little and talk about like the the similarities or differences or what have you in that comparison of of Bly Manor, um, an updated version. Um, and of course, it wasn't an, an, like an exact interpretation because I think he did take some of um, uh, the other works and um, books and kind of sprinkle them into Bly Manor. So, you know, it wasn't exact. There's so. a lot of adaptations, right? There's, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch there's, of them. There's, there's a couple. No, I think this is the most famous one. Yeah, he, he blended two other um, stories. Um, from oh like henry james stories yeah yeah the ro- the romance mm. of certain old clothes and um the jolly corner yeah yeah so there there are obviously some differences but you know i was doing a little reading and i i saw that um mike flanagan said their first day at work for the haunting of blind manor for all the writers the first thing that they did was they went to a screening room there at um amblin entertainment to watch this movie um Huh. Mm. Yeah. He, Nifty. He said, it's a great way to start to put up a really beautiful, realized adaptation of the same source material and to start talking to the writers about the things that I love about it and hear the things that they love about it. So I thought that was really cool. You know, he's he's a lover of film. Um, and I mean, you can. Clearly. It shows. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely shows. shows. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I like that he, you know, kind of took that as a start to, you know, kind of this is what you know, kind of like what we're trying to kind of capture and of course bring their own um, uh, voice to it. But, you know, I, th- I thought that was, um, you know, a really cool way to kind of start things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I guess we just kind of compare and contrast blind manner differences yeah. and similarities. Again, I, as I mentioned, you know, way off the top kind of thing is watching this through the lens of thinking blind manner. Cause obviously, I mean, they're at Bly is where mm-hmm. they're at. The, the names are all the same or similar. Uh, yeah, because I mean, it wasn't Miss Giddens, but I mean, but yeah. there's, Quince. I mean, Miles and Flora, Peter Quint, mm. Miss Jessel, although it was Mary Jessel in this movie, and in Blind Manor it was Rebecca Jessel. Because uh, are my fix. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then even like Miss Gross, we don't get Hannah Gross, but it's Miss mm-hmm. Gross, which I think that was one of the biggest differences is going into it not knowing the source material, not reading, not having read Turn of the Screw, so just really knowing Bly Manor, the whole time I'm waiting for the reveal of Miss Gross being dead, and then it didn't happen. <laughs> and then she left. I know. And I was like, oh, never it mind. It definitely, definitely <laughs> took a, a bit of a turn. And, and I mean, one of the differences, too, is, you know, they had, like, nine hours to tell this story with, with Bly Manor, but, you know, so it's a much right. longer time than what they had in this movie. So they, they did, we did get more uh, in-depth into the um, uh, staff and you know smaller characters mm-hmm. you know we got which i thought was great i you know mike flanagan does characters i think so well and yeah that cook guy was that was it a cook yeah he was a chef the indian guy yeah i mm-hmm. love that guy oh he's great yeah because they mentioned like oh yeah i met the cook but it was all off screen i'm just like it mm-hmm. makes me realize like oh, i'm missing say Roll Coley Coley. Right <laughs> he's just so awesome uh, he needs to be yeah. more everything he does he's just man. so fantastic mm-hmm. um so so yeah so lovable he is he's adorable i wish i he was yeah right here in my kitchen mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um and you, you mentioned the song "A Willow Whaley." You know that was very haunting mm-hmm. in Bly Manor. That's the first I had heard of it. So hearing it, like you said, Pake, like right off the bat when that film started, I was like, "Oh boy!" Um, 
Yep. Here we go. <laughs> that that kind of just put me right back in the mindset of, of Blind Manor because Blind Manor was just, um, you know, I did think it was so well done and I thought it was very beautiful and the characters, um, you know, I thought were were really, really well written. Um, and, you know, I definitely felt a connection there. So it, that, it definitely kind of threw me back into that same mindset. Um, mm-hmm. the, the jewelry box that they had in the movie with that picture of Peter Quint um they you know also borrowed uh that as well for the netflix show they had there was a a jewelry box with um the picture of peter quint in the in the show too and the governess um miss giddens was not her name in blind manor um her name was daniel clayton which was a nod to the 1961 films director jack clayton mm. and i know that they wanted to try and get some uh, cameos from from folks in the film, um, but the only two I think living um, uh, actors were the children, and I I don't know if they like they're just doing their own thing, um, but they they were not in it. But I know that um, he he had wanted to, yeah, kind of have yeah. them in there. That would have been cool. Yeah. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Yeah. I think one of the biggest differences that, again, painted it strangely enough while watching this and really making me watch it through the lens of everything that she's seeing is definitely happening is how Blind Manor really confirms Yes, the ghosts right. were there, and they really were. But like, yeah. we get their oh, whole yeah. plan of possessing the children and what they yeah. were doing. And a little how- too, a little, in mean, a little too much detail <laughs> from my like. She's <laughs> a little too. This is okay. Let's break it all down. This is exactly how it works. Right. Let's uncover all the mystery. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I noticed that too. Well, you know, they they definitely did not have that same. Like, you knew. Um, and they were very clear about what was happening. There's no question, you know, that the that the ghosts yeah. are real, where the film kind of just dances around that ambiguity mm-hmm. about any type of possession. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I, th- I like Bly Manor. I think, I don't think I had, I felt that way at the time that it was, that I wished it was more ambiguous. I can't remember for sure, but, you know. That's just me. Just I love that type of story, you know. <laughs> yeah, personally, I don't have a problem with it. I like Flanagan wrapping everything up in a nice bow at the end. Although I'm, we're not going to spoil this one, but I mean, Midnight Mass is left with a little ambiguity. That's why I like but, Midnight Mass. It's we, very ambiguous. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but as far as like a lot of the character stories and what happens to certain characters, I like that it's pretty cut and dry by the end of the story. Yeah, yeah. I always like more mystery. I just like not knowing. I can't stand mm-hmm. answers. They bother me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because then, then that takes all the fun out of it. You know, it's more fun. I, I, I'm a detective. I love a mystery. And as soon as, as soon as you get to the ending of any Agatha Christie, it's like, oh, that was the ending. I mean, sometimes she really like wows you, but still the ending is just never as great as the buildup to it, in my opinion. And yeah, Mike Flanagan just never nails it for me. I don't know. But, um, on the, on the, the ghosts being real and everything, um, on that aspect of it, I thought it was really interesting on, on my rewatch of this. When um, Giddens sees Jessel's ghost in the schoolroom, she claims that she spoke to her, which, you know, we never see that scene. And I think that's for a reason, Mm -hmm. because by that point, it's like we're pretty much 
thinking it's only in her, happening in her mind. Like we never see Miss Jessel talk to her, but she has, she says she was here waiting for me. She spoke. It came to that. I could feel pity for her if she herself were not so pitiless and hungry, hungry for him, for his arms, his lips. But she can only reach him. They can only reach each other by entering the souls of the children and possessing them. The children are possessed. They live and know and share this hell. It's like, well, how can you know that? That's quite a detailed, you know, I, she must have told you mm -hmm. because where did this little innocent woman learn all that? But this is basically what the entire show of Bly Manor is built on. Mike Flanagan took one line of a movie and made an entire mm -hmm. show, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I thought that was cool that she, that, that's it, that is exactly, it's what so much, that it fleshes out so much of Bly Manor is the fact that these ghosts are trying to use the children to get to each other they figured out a way they figured out a loophole so that they won't you know lose their faces and get lose lose Forget themselves everything. yeah just waste away into obscurity they're trying to cling to um to humanity you know and i also thought it was um something that reminded me of bly manor in this is uh the way that remember when miles tells um Ms. Uh, Hannah Gross in Bly Manor, you you need to look down, Hannah. You need to just admit that you're dead. Admitting it, saying it out loud. You're like the roadrunner, you know? You just got to look down and then it'll it'll click for you. It's kind of like what just, uh, Giddens is convinced will break the spell, you know, here. If you say his name, if you say, you know, his name, that will, I guess exercise this demon from you you know acknowledge him call yeah. him out you know which tracks with her background that we learn about because it's very much the truth will set you free, right right like that's <laughs> the truth will set you free yep man talking about the possession of the kids and stuff in blind manner just again gave me the visual of like the uh knowing when at least with miles is possessed with the heterochromatic eye heterochromatic yeah. eyes and i just remembered yeah. that it was like oh my god i still remember how cool that was and how much i gushed about yeah. it on the podcast like we how went cool on and on about that quite a lot <laughs> um, that was so yeah. so great um <laughs> and uh henry thomas and the two child actors two of the child actors were at a walker stalker and you guys got to do their panel that was yeah. Hill well, that House. Was, uh, yeah, Hill House. That was Hill oh, House. that was yeah. Hill House. Yeah. Yeah. That's I would have loved. Yeah, the kids from Bly were awesome. I would love to talk But yeah, Hill House was where we had. We got with uh, Luke and Nell, the, the two little yeah. twins. I wonder how old they are now. They're probably in like graduating college. I still or kind of have contact with uh, Julian that played young Luke because uh, he's kind of local ish. And so after that convention, I was like, I kept up with his mom. Like he popped up. He was, yeah, in, he was uh, in WandaVision. WandaVision. Yeah. And I. And I texted his mom and I was like, holy crap, he's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe now. And she like immediately texted me back. He's like, he's been so excited and he couldn't tell anybody. Oh, and so God. I was like, I'm still kind of, yeah. It's gotta be tough. <laughs> That's awesome, Peg. Yeah, that is super and cool. Another, another scene that was, um, that was kind of like a one-to-one -one equivalent in both the show and the film was the Miles like poet, poetry recitation. When mm -hmm. in in the film it seems that like was good. yeah man oh that scene made me just love this this kid oh this kid can act <laughs> man he's so good um he's it seems like he's invoking Peter Quinn's ghost spirit yeah like he's casting a spell mm -hmm. this is the moment like where uh, Giddens thought decided that the kids are trying to be a part of this yeah like she says what if he knows spirits and yeah. yeah. 
and mm-hmm. and it seems like he's performing this like ceremony. Satanic he's got this ritual. this candle, yeah, and he's got this crown, like he's a prince of darkness or something. And that whole um, uh, poem was written by Truman Capote for the film, and it kind of reminded me of like the "it's you, it's me, it's us" thing from Bly Manor, because when when you give permission to an entity to inhabit you then it will stay forever you know and he has the lines are you know what shall i do for my lord will not stay like he's wanting him to stay in him like enter my lord for the moon is arisen and then he whispers welcome my lord and it's like if that seems some demonic shit i don't know what is you know (laughs) there's something about a grave in there too come from your grave yeah oh yeah that that was another one come from your grave uh, uh his feet, oh, I have it. Um, what shall I say when his feet enter softly, leaving the marks of his grave on my floor? And it reminded me of like the lady in the lake, like footprints, you know? Yeah. And and I think it's so interesting that like this easily could have been some kind of biblical text to twist, you know, in a creepy mm-hmm. way or like another piece of literature or something. Um, but I think it's very purposeful that in this film it is original because you know, it's like, did Miles write this? And it's more creepy right. because contemporary audiences, yeah, they right. They would have been, contemporary audiences would have been really well read. And so they would have been picked right up if this were a famous piece of literature, if this were something from the Bible and they would have been, oh, I know what that is. Okay, I get how they're twisting it to fit this circumstance. But I think it's more creepy that it's like an original text that everyone is like hanging on the edge of their seat. Like, what's he going to say next? Because it almost seems like Miles wrote this, you know, it's very mm-hmm. creepy. That was one of the scenes that in Bly Manor really didn't, didn't hit for me and nothing against um i don't have his name in front of me the the actor who played miles nothing against him at all i just think he was kind of miscast because he always seemed to me like a boy and not that he's not amazing like he he's doing an amazing job but something about his it's what it comes down to for actors as an actor i always hear your energy isn't right it's like you can't you can say every line perfectly. You can stand. You can walk perfectly. But it's something about an energy that a human has. And this little boy mm-hmm. in Bly Manor, he just had this boyish quality always. And he he never seemed imposing enough. And something about uh, Miles in the film, um, what's his name? Pete, uh, no, Martin Stevens. Stevens. Yeah. Martin. He <laughs> just seems like... A cr- it's creepy how adult he seems. It is you disturbing. Can just, like, switch it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. I, it's disturbing <clears throat> to see a child that. It doesn't seem at all forced. It just seems really natural too. Really natural. It's yeah. his energy. I'm telling you. It's because just, you he can has. Imagine... A, while he's acting like an adult, he feels like he has an open heart. You know, right. it's not like a character actor kind of a performance. It, and I inhabit. and I think that yeah, and I think that part of it is the best film acting is not acting because it's just the person being who they are. Yeah, and I, I think, think that the that actor is genuinely... was actually possessed by an older man. So, <laughs> no, no, that's not what, what I mean. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, he went to a Satanist right before they shot <laughs> this film. Dedicated kid. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that, I think the beauty of it is he's, he's not trying too hard to do anything. He's just being, mm-hmm. letting it be. And somehow he can do it. Somehow it's just his yeah. presence conveys exactly what is needed here for this character. So I really loved that although, scene. Although I, I did actually myself really enjoy the Bly Manor version of that because it's a little different. Whether, you know, however you feel about the delivering of it from from the kid again, I don't remember his name either. Uh, they did the same poem? But, 
No, no. It wasn't the same poem he did because he didn't tell a poem at all. It was a it was like story I, time where oh. he gave well. I did not his own story and his story was about kind of like a puppet who's trying to break yeah. free from its strings. And so I, I personally thought that that was a really interesting way of doing that, too, where it's kind of this so literal, saying though. but not saying what's going on with Peter Quint. I thought it was pretty, pretty, I thought it was very literal. I was like, oh, we couldn't have any ambiguity, not even in the poem. Come on, man. Like, it's, just lay it right out there. I mean, yeah, I liked the poem's um, haunting quality and just ambiguity. Yeah. yeah. Real big fan of the ambiguity. In case, in case you didn't know. Or are you? Where are you? Am you I? never know. <laughs> no, she'll never yeah. tell. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, um, there's so so many things were similar. Hide and seek is in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they that. they did um, a lot of same things. The statue garden, um, the the she walks dress up. She walks from the yeah. Mm-hmm. Think of uh, them them finding Miss Jessel's body in the lake and thinking it was because of grief over Peter Quint. When then, of course, in Blind Manor, it's more lady of the lake situations and all that stuff going on yeah. but, uh or actually with her i'm trying to remember because there was a whole like no because i think it was peter quint like de- uh i'm trying to piece back blind manor this many years later i haven't seen it but maybe there was something where he like him as a ghost had like convinced her to to take her life in the lake to like no no he never and that wasn't working or... i watched it more much more recently than you guys so i i okay, do remember cool. yeah, this so you... he did not no he um he did the, you know, let uh, let me in. You know, he was looking at her like we yeah, can. So they were both taken by the lady. At we the can la- be lady together. The in that well, case, right? he, it was her. It was her physical form, but he was inside of it because he he remember he was mm-hmm. like he was he was like we can be together if you let me in. You have to think it's you, it's me, it's us. And she was like okay, and she That's she right, breathed yeah. him in, and then he did the thing he he said he wasn't going to do, and he tucked her away. And he um was I guess wandering alone for a while, and he didn't want to be alone, and so then he. Found a way to um, really have them let them be together forever, and that was to kill her physical form, and then yeah. she wouldn't have a choice but to be dead. But she did not; that was not what she agreed to. So she was pretty pissed about it. And and he also, I guess, he left her to deal with it on her own. Like he he wasn't there for the death, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Really fucking horrible, Peter Quint. I remember just the most despicable <laughs> piece of shit I think on the planet. <laughs> but then they do the thing, you know, that I don't hate, where they flesh out his backstory, and we see he was sexually abused by his father, and his mother, you know, is there, and we have all that you know, horrible scene with his, his horrible mother basically wanting to take advantage mm-hmm. of him. And, and, you know, yeah, it made me, I, I don't hate when I get a little bit of sympathy for the, the quote unquote bad guy, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. I did enjoy that. No, I, I, that. I really enjoyed getting Mrs. Gross. I mean, uh, Tania, uh, her last name is escaping now and I'm ashamed because she's this, truly, Tinia Miller, thank you. Truly yeah, yeah. one of the great actresses of our day. I mean, this woman is compelling as shit. I loved I mean, yeah, her. She's great. Loved <laughs> her. I thought she was, yes. she brought so much to that character and to- totally different from This Is Gross we get in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. had a very quiet grace. 
about her in in that role. It was oh, just the subtlety. Yeah, Mwah, chef's kisses all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I, I fa- I'm fangirl act, acting fangirl all over on that. She was amazing. Yep. Um, I like some of the filming See, choices. Subtlety, subtlety yeah. is good. <laughs> subtlety, I'm telling you, <laughs> it can be very Give good. Me more. That's why I liked her so much. I was like, oh yes, an understated thing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, and speaking of subtlety, you know they they had some interesting choices um, when they were filming. In the film, they had purposely um, made lenses to like blur some mm-hmm. shots that they even would paint directly onto the lens to kind of give that foggy effect um, with the channel of light in the, in like the a, center. Like uh, with Barbara Walters like to do. Kind of thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, oh, Barbara, Barbara Walters. Or Barbara Streisand. That's how I meant. Barbara she always wanted like a filter. So she oh, ha, ha. Nicer. Okay. <laughs> she, she must Sorry. love the iPhone features. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she loves like a face, face tune or whatever it is. <laughs> Barbara Streisand. Ha, that's funny. I'm sure she does. Um, but the cinematographer in, uh, or for Bly Manor, they did a similar effect with the yeah. ghosts in the series. They said that they were always, the ghosts were always meant to be subtle and not on the nose. And, you know, um, they didn't really want them to have, you know, a bright light there in the background. And they, you know, tried to deal with it in post and, you know, where they were always or were like, because sometimes they were in the reflections or they were in the dark corners. So I really liked, you know, how there were some similarities in their, their filming choices. I thought it was very interesting. I remember watching the film and it looked like there was, um, you could almost see the, the, like these blurred or black edges, you know, around, around the lens and how it was like bright. And that was was interesting. That was to get away from the hindrances of um, CinemaScope because it was such a wide shot all the time Mm. that Jack Clayton was forced to use. Um, The studios would not let him not use CinemaScope. And he was like, oh, fine. And so he found a way around it. And he would just uh, and also what it does to um, what it does is it distorts the the frame and so people's faces were looking strange through the lens because it was just too much that was getting i guess too much light gets in or something i don't know the mechanics of framing shots camera and people are probably screaming if they do know but yeah he he found a way to get around it by doing all that and it creates a more otherworldly effect that adds to the feel of yeah you know wondering how real it all is that's what i got from it was like you know we're, we're kind of getting like this filtered view from yeah this viewpoint of miss giddens and that's what i was kind of taking from that right yeah. yeah it's it's crazy how um how oh man I, never mind keep talking <laughs> I, I just i just like thought six things at once and then i lost all of them i'll come back with it I hate it when that happens <laughs> my brain would blow up oh if i God. was doing that <laughs> It's because I it's because I, I started reading something and then I was speaking, talking something else. <laughs> oh, oh, I remember what I was going to say. It's, it's crazy how when you're filming something so huge as this vast, sprawling mansion, how it can almost the way that he, the way that he shot it seemed like it's still claustrophobic. It's like, mm-hmm. how can you get claustrophobic mm-hmm. with these huge a huge frame filming a huge space, you know, mm-hmm. but he did it, you know, mm-hmm. and it, and it really yeah. added to the energy of like feeling her insanity is like the, the walls were closing in on her and she couldn't find a way to escape. Kind of suffocating. 
suffocating. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. the candlelight, really the darkness at night with the candlelight that only illuminated around them, mm-hmm. directly around them, help with that sometimes. Yeah. And they used like special candles for the filming, like these huge tapers that I guess the flame was like two inches high or something, but they burned like at six times the speed. So it was really hard for continuity. <laughs> and you can almost see it in, in the shots, like when they click. Uh, cut away and cut back that you can see the candles burning down like way more than they would have <laughs> if she had just taken a single step you know but and and the flames are just flickering like madly in front of her but the, it looks you know brilliant i'm sure it was like crazy hot i mean god Deborah Carr must have sweated like a whole person out making this film <laughs> she must have just oh she was what a trooper man absolutely Okay. What else was Anything there? else? Any other thoughts or notes about either the film or Bly Manor? Um, they yeah they they did a couple <laughs> they did a couple of like tribute shots with um the way that we see Peter Quint in the in the film is this exact same mm. as you know we see him in the same exact way through the window first that's what the way Danny yeah, sees him that's right and. Yeah, like Danny walks from the car to the house. She wants to get out and, you know, walk up, I guess. Mm-hmm. That was also like kind of a tribute. And what else? And if I'm oh, correct, oh, yeah. the first time we see the like ghost of Rebecca Jessel is also across the lake, right? Yes. Like in the- yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. same spot. Yep. Yeah, yeah I-, I thought it was cool, too, how they made um, similar into the way that Deborah Carr... Uh, Ms. Giddens brings this mental instability into the job with her. We see Danny brings her haunting with her. You know, she she's already mm-hmm. haunted before she gets there. She's already disturbed. Mentally unraveling, you know, has already begun with her. Yeah, she sees that figure. She hears someone calling out for Flora. She sees a figure in the gazebo when she first gets there. Mm-hmm. She's mad from the start mm-hmm. yeah we know we're we're not it's not as ambiguous again but we're <laughs> we're pretty darn sure that danny is not crazy she's haunted you know yeah whereas in yeah the film we just don't know if this woman is crazy or not she's most crazy. likely yes <laughs> most likely, yeah i think we're probably all in the crazy camp <laughs> definitely leans that way yeah i really wasn't sure at first but i think the more we've talked about it i'm kind of like yeah, no, that's all in her head. I think so. <laughs> I mean, I really do think that the intention of the writer and the director was for us to not know for sure and for there to be yeah. different possible interpretations. But I like, I just go with the one I find the most interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. There's so many twists and turns. Every time you think you have it completely pinned down, the children mm-hmm. do something, There's something that, that you're yeah. like, uh, but that's bit, pretty yeah. provoking. And like, if anyone did that, <laughs> mm-hmm. I would be upset too. So it's like, you know, but then again, you just never know how much is real and how much is not mm-hmm. real. Like how much of a, how reliable is she as a narrator? How much of this is real? What's going on right here? I mean, <laughs> this is a matrix and we don't know. We don't exist. <laughs> then I don't have to yeah. edit. Is that right? Nope. Awesome. Any other thoughts or notes? God, I have a million, but I'm gonna tap, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stop myself. I could talk about this film for so long, man. There's so much to go into. 
Well, I'm so glad that you brought it to our attention and um, yeah. wanted, wanted to cover this because um, I, I found it really interesting, um, you know, especially having watched Bly Manor and, you know, I thought it was a just very well done. So thanks for introducing it to us um, and asking oh, I'm to cover so it. I'm so glad you guys, yeah, I'm so glad you guys wanted to do this. Yeah. I know that, uh, Rima, you were really busy and you're like, oh, I'm just too busy. And then Jason did some kind of bullying something to get you here. So thanks, Jason. He was just so convincing. Uh, I just felt <laughs> that I had to. <laughs> he can be quite persuasive. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, Indeed he can. Yeah. No, this was. It was really. Yeah, fun. this was this was really great. So thank you all for you know taking the time to do it. So, um, well then let's move along. Then we did get an email. We didn't get any other a lot of listener feedback. I know I did not give uh, a lot of time for this. I kind of because I was so busy. I had not um, put a lot of um, advance notice for all of our listeners out there. So, but we did get an email. Uh, from Daphne. And she says, Hi, Rima, Peg, Jason, and welcome, Jade. Uh, if I remember correctly, I mentioned when you were covering The Haunting of Bly Manor that I was thinking of not watching it because I didn't enjoy The Innocence. In the end, I did watch it and I liked it a lot. The cast for The Innocence was great, but I just couldn't get into it. While there are some things I appreciate about it, I think what Mike Flanagan did with The Haunting of Bly Manor was much better, especially in the suspense and creep factor. I also think that having longer, um, like a TV series, to connect with the characters makes you more invested. Anyway, those are my thoughts and probably the only negative opinion you received, Daphne. (laughs) (laughs) It's the the only only opinion, so (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that at all. No, I get it. It it took me a minute for sure. because I was like, what is going on? And maybe that was part of that ambiguity that was coming out. I was like, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> Not an so, answer to be had. Yeah. So I can totally get that. Thank you, Daphne, so much for uh, writing in. Really appreciate that, that you took the time. Because you know, you're all so busy. We're all so busy. Um, yeah. Well, that was great. Um, thank you again, Jade, for joining us. For the first oh, time. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I would love to, yeah, to, to talk with you guys about Midnight Club at some point, if you will have me. Yeah, we're going to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, we even though we get so much great feedback even though, just in yeah, I'm always going to find a way. Yeah, I'm always going to find a way to insert myself somehow. <laughs> no, I love I love um discussing Mike Flanagan stuff because there's it's like I always am so torn between do I do I love it or not? Do I, you know, and it's like I can get into it. It's like I guess his his vibe is just not my preferred vibe, but I think it's good to experience stuff that's not always your highest preference because it forces Mm. you to question why and it forces you to examine what do I like or why do I like this or not like this you know I don't know I like Mm -hmm. to give things a good think so yeah Mike Flanagan's good for that he Mm -hmm. certainly is and we're very interested in um, getting your thoughts on um, upcoming episodes so absolutely um, and thank you also, Jason, for joining us. Kind of brought the thank group back together after locking key. So <laughs> this was great. That's right. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Getting the band back together. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. I want to come on for a Midnight Club episode too. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so. there's a, certainly a lot um, to talk about with that show. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anytime either of you are on, then that keeps me from having to try to break it to five <laughs> points because that gets hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Midnight Club is giving me uh, some ambiguity. We're ha- you know, I'm not getting a whole lot of answers and I'm liking it. I'm liking it a whole lot. Good. Some new actors that I didn't know about that I'm really loving. I think it's great. A lot of yeah. a lot of good stuff. I'm liking Midnight Club more and more with every passing episode. Oh, good. I'm not. Yeah, I'm just. My my interest is only growing with the with the show. It's not at all diminishing. Me too. Oh, yeah, that's same. good. Well, I cool. love to hear it. Um. Well, yeah. Hopefully, we'll although some it. of the actors you guys praised, I thought stunk. Oh! I have to say, <laughs> some of the actors I praised the the the. I, I think you all did. The woman who she met out in the forest. Uh, no, Samantha yeah, Swain. Yeah. Who? You don't like? Wait, are you being honest? <laughs> <laughs> I'll never tell. Oh um, my god, I hate you. <laughs> I'm just too gullible. Yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, maybe when I come on, she'll be on there, and we'll we'll see. Wait, no, are you being honest? Or I, damn it, Jason, I can't tell if you're kidding or not right now. Do you not like this? Uh, Midnight. Did Club. you see Midnight Mass? She killed it in Midnight Mass. What are you she talking was great about, man? Midnight Mass. Yeah. Okay, so you do like her Hated then? Her. Wait, what? <laughs> Quit it. Quit it. Well, more to come on Jason's opinion. <laughs> I know. Of Shasta, maybe in Midnight Club, or maybe we'll just be completely ambiguous about it and not. That's right. Either way, (laughs) fuck (laughs) yeah. Like we've been talking about, next up for us, we will be back to our weekly coverage of the Midnight Club with episode four, titled "Gimme a Kiss." Oh, Um, aptly titled. Yeah, Miles. No Miles spoilers. would be like, hmm, no. I, <laughs> I gotta watch that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because this episode. Would be into it. <laughs> yeah, this episode, I'm gonna go ahead and release um, for Halloween, but we'll be back to our regular um, schedule um, for Midnight Club. So this is awesome. All right. Well, if you want to write in and leave us a message, you can find all of our contact information over at podcastica.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out other amazing shows. <laughs> Shameless plug, Jason, <laughs> Penny, and I are uh, recapping um, Dead to Me. We're starting, we just finished season one, and we're going to move on to season two, doing two episodes for each season. First, we're talking about the first five episodes of Dead to Me in the first episode, and the last ha- the last five episodes of Dead to Me in the second episode that we have out so far. So when- This is a show with Christina Applegate, Linda Cardellini. It's a... Uh- kind of a dark comedy it's mystery it's also an exploration okay it's a dark comedy it's about (laughs) grief and loss um but i think for most people it can be cathartic i would i do always when i talk about this i say if you've lost someone and you just don't want to go there then maybe just wait a little while before you watch this but if you're curious because it's it's so well written so well acted and i really would love rima if you would check it out at least the first episode because i think you're gonna love it oh yeah (laughs) You, wh- yeah, wait, you don't want to? Well, she's so busy, right? She's just like, just give me oh. something else to watch. Got it. Yeah. I just know. Well, I talked. <laughs> the episodes are only half an hour. So there's that bonus. Yeah, there's they're that pretty bonus. quick. Too, and also yeah. just. It's, and I James just, Marston's in it. And James Marston's in it. That does nothing for me. I feel like the show. 
<laughs> oh, it might when you start. Um, yeah, because he because I wouldn't say that he would have done anything for me either until I started uh, until I saw him on that. I was like, oh man, the man can act. It really gives him a, a platform to do his thing. He's a douchebag. No, it's not that he's like charming mm. or anything, but he's funny and he's not well, Teddy from well Westworld. I was gonna say I, I really like him in Westworld. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. Yeah, you'll see the other side of what he can do in season one of um, Dead to Me. Good. But yeah, the show will not waste your time. That's for sure. If you're worried about it, don't be. Not worried. <laughs> just the time. <laughs> it's just one more show. Yeah, you know, do House I have the, the time? Is over yeah. now. So, you know, that's it, it has definitely opened up some time for me. So I'll, I will definitely um, put it at the top to, to check it out. It's so. Aww. Check it out. Check it out. Good. You've convinced me. Yes. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yay! We're very convincing. <laughs> Persuasive. And of course, for all the listeners out there, go check out, yeah, the Dead to Me podcast, House of the Dragon, the Dragon cast. With that, finishing up, go back and listen to all of those because Reem and Kristen killed it and all the other stuff going on. Yeah. And make sure you go and follow, subscribe, download, whatever you can do with all those podcasts as well to keep those cranking up the numbers, right? Let other people all find the things. us. All the things. I'm so proud of our network right now with. <laughs> With Handmaid's Tale, House of the Dragon, how well you guys did, and when on um, Rings of Power. It's so good. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, and whoever I didn't mention, please don't feel bad. But I mean, I just think everybody's just kicking ass. Rocking it, rocking it. is just up, 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 up. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're, we're getting a breather now, which is good. But yeah. Um, and I am supposed to say, and I'm happy to say, be sure to check out <laughs> Peyton Daphne at Run for Your Lives, yeah. where you guys just finished It-tober, right? Yeah, finished uh, It-tober. We went through, broke It into four weeks all month long, did the mini series, 1990 miniseries in two parts, and then did the two uh, Andy Machete directed, 2017-2019 It, chapters one and two. That was a lot of fun. And actually, we're releasing a special Halloween episode, so that's out right now today for those who are listening. Happy Halloween. Go check out uh, our coverage of Halloween Ends. Ooh, so excited. Yay. Which Interesting. was quite a conversation. <laughs> quite a we had last talking about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. It is like the next mm. thing probably I'm going to do after we finish this right now. I'm going to listen to that. I can't <laughs> wait to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, well... <laughs> Depends on how you felt about the movies, how you're going to feel about our coverage. Um, <laughs> I think I don't think we've no... already gotten some feedback that people are like, oh my God, I love this. I'm like, you're not going to like this oh, episode. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so but... no ambiguity about <laughs> how you how felt yeah, about no, it. No, no. So. <laughs> okay, we're on the it's same very page. Clear. Okay. Well, good luck. Uh, but yeah, but, but even when a movie's not great, I think it lends to really fun conversations. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Fear. <clears throat> <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next time, I'm Rima. And I'm Pink. And Catherine Peters is strange indeed. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.